The biggest thing for people to recognize is that going through grief doesn't mean you're going to be depressed. It is not an automatic thing that if you do this, this will happen. And also what we said towards the end, that also if you grief, you're not going to become a victim. If you acknowledge certain things that are painful, it does not mean you will fall into victimhood. And you can give yourself that permission without being afraid that you'll come across as weak or be weak. Welcome to the Emotional Fortitude Podcast. How to build the emotional fortitude to win in life and in business. No fluff, just real-world results. I'm your host, Ida Marmorani, ex-Israeli Special Forces, former undercover agent, jiu-jitsu black belt, and mindset expert. Hi, everyone. Today for the podcast, we're joined for a special episode with Sherry Walling. She's a clinical psychologist. She works with entrepreneurs, and she helps smart people do hard things. And she's also the author of a new book, Touching Two Worlds, which talks about grief. And we have her on today to talk to us about basically how grief and actually performance and not just running away from things, but actually internalizing and processing them, how it can actually be a big positive thing. It's not something we need to shy away from or something that doesn't need to be spoken about. So Sherry, thank you for coming. I am so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me for this conversation. Thank you. All right. So if you could please just introduce us the concept of the book, why you wrote it, because it has some, has some deep stuff there. Yeah. So this book was written largely about my own experience of grief. As you mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I've trained to help people through experiences of trauma and grief. All that information kind of lives in my head. But a couple of years ago, I did a, a deep dive into grief in my own life. I lost my dad to esophageal cancer, and then I lost my little brother to suicide six months apart from each other. So it was this like sort of this like whiplash experience of being immersed in the lives of people who were falling apart and then eventually who died. And I've, I found that a lot of what I had learned about grief or thought about grief from a clinical perspective just really didn't match up with my experience. So I wanted to record what I experienced and, and sort of what I learned or what I observed throughout the process in hopes that it might help other folks who are going through grief. So what was the big difference from what you observed and what is taught, quote unquote? There are a couple of things. One is that I guess the folks that I would end up interacting with, we thought of grief as something to be treated, right? Like a problem to be worked out or cured or healed from. And my experience of grief is, is not so much that it is a diagnosis, right? Not a, not a clinical issue. It's sort of the byproduct of love, the byproduct of all that is like healthy and beautiful in us. And so I found that it's something to be kind of held with reverence and to be learned from more than something that you want to like get over as quickly as possible because you might get stuck in some grief reality and not be able to function. That, that really didn't resonate with me at all. The other big thing that I took away from my grief experience is the sense that um, grief was very embodied for me. So even though I love words, I wrote a book about it, like I've been a therapist, I tell stories, listen to stories, I sort of live in the world of words. Much of my uh, coming to wholeness or feeling integrated after grief had to do with my ability to really move my body and uh, practice different, you know, things that got me moving because it was my like stillness in the body that seemed to be most problematic for me from a grief perspective. Okay. So I, I want to get into that later. I have that in my notes because I know yeah. you have some very, some very interesting hobbies, uh, physical <laughs> hobbies. Um, 
What was interesting to me to hear you say that? Do you think a lot of people are afraid of actually, let's say, and again, your user vernacular is very interesting, but I would say process grief because they're afraid to get stuck in it. I think that's why a lot of people just don't even want to approach it. They just want to shove it aside because they're afraid of staying in this kind of loop. Yeah, I think people kind of equate maybe grief with depression. And so they see it as like a pathology to not fall into. I also think that we as a society are pretty uncomfortable with negative emotions. And so we tend to stay away from them and treat them as pathology rather than, you know, something that could actually be helpful for us to walk toward. What do you mean by pathology? Could you elaborate that a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, again, the sort of like doctor part of me thinks of pathology as like an illness to be treated. Yeah. So if you come to it, me and you're having like very significant clinical depression, I'm like, okay, this is, this is disrupting your life. Like we should figure out how to do something about that. Let, let's change that. Let's fix it, quote unquote. And grief is different because you feel like it's not something that's disruptive. It's just more of a, the ebb and flow of life. That's okay. To or it's into. a natural welcome disruption. Interesting. That's not permanent. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Um, yeah. You're, I've heard you also on several podcasts and your use of vernacular is very interesting. And I feel a lot of times entrepreneurs, they have a, a depth of vocabulary that allows them to have a depth of understanding inside their business. Like they don't just mm -hmm. say, oh, we're not making enough money. They have, okay, we have issues with our sales. We have issues with our profits. Mm -hmm. We have issues with our back end recurring. And when it comes to emotions or that kind of world, they don't. And that's why it seems scary. And that's why it's just like, oh, like how you said the difference between grief and depression. And I'm assuming mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even know that little nuance. So it's scary to approach grief because they think it automatically equates to depression. Yeah. And I've heard you say a lot of times using the words uh, holding healing and in regards to grief. And I'd love to hear, like, just you elaborate on this. What does it mean to you? And how do you, just in general, how do you bring more, a more rich vernacular to people so they're not afraid of this stuff? I do think language is really important. And I'm, I feel like you've picked up on something that maybe I'm not even doing intentionally, but um, I came to feel that grief was, again, this something to hold, something to treat with some reverence and some um, like fragility, like a, a ten, like almost like you have an injury in your body, and you you're you're gentle with that shoulder or you're gentle with that knee while it's healing. You don't cut it off because it's not serving you or it's like slightly injured. You wait for it. You let it heal. You 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 go slow. You do your PT. You you know, you have this sort of slow reverence for this part of you that needs to be kind of brought back up to full capacity. And I guess that's maybe the analogy that I would hold with grief in a similar way, or that the language of holding, the language of going slow. That's such an interesting analogy. I'm wondering where you came up with it first, because I'm assuming you had to convince some A-type person, like, no, don't just cut off your arm. You need it in the future. It's okay. Let it heal or let your shoulder <laughs> heal. How did you come up with that analogy? I think it's it's, it's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've spent my career working with military folk and with entrepreneurs. So <laughs> I work with people who are pretty intolerant of any weakness within themselves. And if you are intolerant of something that you don't like about yourself, the tendency is to like muscle through or push through or override or grit and like practice yeah. through the pain. And, you know, maybe there's 
there's a place and time for that kind of thought. But generally speaking, um, when we listen to that thing that we need to work with and go slow and sort of work with it, um, it, it tends to turn out better. But that that does take some convincing. It takes some framing for the folks that I work with who are like basically go fast and break things. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of sounds like me in a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to call you out. I don't know you well enough, but. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk about it, though, because it's very interesting how a big part of the podcast, what we're trying to do is to give people the permission to recognize that there are there is a time and place for defense mechanisms to put things aside when you got to do things. But just like holding your breath, it can't be a permanent. That can't be how you're yep. doing things always and, and always. Um and I wonder if you have a kind of tool to how can people give themselves permission or to know when is the right time? When is it okay to actually let your foot off the gas a little bit and process this? It's kind of a safe space. You don't have to go. And when is it actually time to go? If you help people distinguish between those two, I feel like it's easier for them to actually go in and solve things instead of just pushing them aside. Yeah, I would think about like chronic versus acute stressors. So sometimes mm. there, there's something that must be done. It's acute, right? There's either a threat or there's a big launch or there's a big project. There's some very time-limited, time-defined thing that you're pushing toward. And I think that's a good time for defense mechanisms. It's a good time to maybe not be super self-reflective. It's not a time for emotion. It's a time for action. And I'm, you know, that is part of life for all people who are doing really difficult things. But if that becomes chronic, if that becomes your day in, day out lived reality, then that becomes highly problematic. So the time between those acute stressors or, the, or those acute bursts of action is when I think we're wise to take that more introspective, self-reflective, do the deeper work, slow down, go inside a little bit more. And I think the tendency, as you're identifying for entrepreneurs, for folks who may always see a chronic stressor or like a big project that needs yeah. doing. Um, and I think the danger in never slowing down, of course, from a physiological perspective, is your body never resets. And the same is true from an emotional or from a grief perspective. Those are not disparate concepts, right? Grief is embodied. Emotion is embodied. All of that sort of lives in our body in the same way. So there has to be these bursts of energy and then time for recovery. So I love what you said, and I think it's great. And so you said the danger is that you're not going to have, this is the danger. So what's the upside that you've seen when people actually do take these breaks? Like what's kind of a before and after that you can create a picture for people? Say, yeah, this is worth it. If you do this, there is, it's not just, okay, things are not going to be as bad, but there's actually a really big upside for you. Yeah. So maybe some of the upside can be defined in the downside. Like the nightmare scenarios or the, the problematic scenarios are, you know, the Vietnam era veteran that I've worked with who has been holding a sense of guilt and grief around a com like somebody who died for 40 years and mm. has never been able to say that person's name, has never been able to like, you know, not enjoy, but like even tolerate Memorial Day or 4th of July, like lives in some amount of torture because of this unprocessed grief. So that's, that's what we don't want. That's a little bit of the edge case scenario. I do think that that's maybe some of the lesson is that heavy things will get their due eventually. 
So whether that's trauma or grief or some unprocessed pain, it will find a way to trickle up into your consciousness, usually at a time when it's least desirable, at a time when you're under stress or when you have other demands and you find yourself getting disrupted and dysregulated. So it's much better to have kind of like a clean slate so that you're dealing with the painful, difficult, traumatic things in your life as they come up rather than storing them up for some time in the future when they can cause cracks in the foundation. It's great. And would it also be accurate to say that when you're trying to do something that's already out of your comfort zone, if you also have these things bottled up inside you, it's just adding friction and, and chaos and just it's creating a higher degree of difficulty than what it should be. Or baggage. Yeah. Or baggage. Yeah. I mean, not to mention all the growth that is possible for us as humans when we do engage the difficult things. So many of your listeners lead teams. They maybe they run companies or they lead other kinds of teams. And all of those humans that they interact with have their own grief stories. And so for mm -hmm. you as a leader to be grief literate means that you're going to be optimally supportive and really help your team function at the highest level. But that is only going to happen if you do your work. If you don't do your work and you're kind of stunted in your own approach to grief, then uh, you know it's incredibly hard to lead people through hard things if you haven't done the work first. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. I'd love to dig into it a little bit. I can see a lot of people thinking to themselves, well, I don't want to dive into grief with my team because A, it's going to be a distraction. B, I'm not sure that everyone can handle it. And some people will fall, like I said, into a depression because that's the belief mm -hmm. that they're associating the two. How can we ensure that people can give people in the workspace the opportunity to remove the, that baggage so they can actually function more optimally and have better lives also outside the workplace? And without having also the fear that am I going to cause someone to fall into a depression? And is this actually yeah. going to hurt performance, bottom line, and so on and so on? Yeah, probably you're not that powerful. So if you ask the <laughs> wrong question, I don't think you're going to be the one thing that like pew, plummets them into depression. That said, we do want to be careful with folks when they're in a vulnerable state. So I, I honor the, the framing of it. I think one of the things about grief that sometimes we don't realize is that it can be fuel. Like it can create tremendous amount of focus. People get really in touch with what, with what is meaningful to them. Sometimes it can spawn a lot of creativity. And so if you are a team leader, I think having a candid conversation with someone on your team about like, hey, I know that you've recently lost one of your parents and I just... How's that going for you? What do you feel like you need? What flexibility can we offer you? Because some days that individual may not be great at work. They may be kind of a mess. Other days they might have tremendous focus. And so you want to create enough flexibility that, that there's an open conversation where that person can say, put me in. I got this. I'm ready for this. This is what is meaningful and driving me right now. And other moments say, hey, just so you know, like I'm not functioning at my full brain today and I probably shouldn't be, you know, the one leading the sales call or whatever it is. Yeah. So I have a question for you that you're probably gonna laugh at, but <laughs> do you put a certain timeline on this? Like honestly, when you expect, how much are we gonna give a certain person to yourself? Like and internally, when you went through this process, do you say, okay, I recognize like in rehab, for example, there are phases. You talked about a shoulder, yeah. there's phases where you go through and you kind of progress. Do you preemptively say, you know what, this is, I'm going to give myself permission to grieve for X amount of time, and then I'm going to reassess? 
how do you go about this? Is it kind of just like a, a wing it and kind of see, or is there something preemptive where you strategize how you're going to go through this? How is that process? I would not laugh at that question. I think it's a really <laughs> good question because it's about like setting expectations. Yeah. I think the, the danger in the question is that it becomes rigid and then we sort of compare ourselves to some norm. Like, oh, I'm seven months in and I'm still sad every time I hear this certain song. I, I must be doing this wrong or I need help. You know, something's wrong with me. Um, generally speaking, the first six weeks of any major transition is a lot of physiological arousal, right? Your body is just like, what the hell happened? I can't sleep. I can't regulate very well. Also, in the case of grief by death, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of just logistics, depending on how close you are to the person that died. So I would say the first six weeks is just sort of like the zone of refine your bearings. And then a lot of people experience pretty significant sadness in the kind of six weeks following that. So I would say for the first three months, you're relatively impaired in your ability to go about normal life because the, your internal resources are devoted to something else. And then for many people, there's kind of an evening out and kind of a finding a new normal, getting back to the pace of life. And then there can be another kind of big dip around the one year mark of someone's bereavement that tends to be this time where you're aware of all of the last, right? The last conversation or the last uh, trip together, those kinds of things. So that timeline is not scientific and not concrete and not for everybody, but I think it's kind of like a reasonable pacing given the ways that um, significant transition and stressors move through our system. Yeah. Do you find that some people move faster if they really give themselves permission to to dive into this and accept it and, and hold it as you say as opposed to trying to just go about their normal lives and it kind of bubbles in the background as you previously mentioned do you feel like that actually yeah, I think, changes the timeline or is it kind of the same thing i think more space is helpful i can't tell you from like a clinically studied empirical research perspective because i haven't done that project but um i also think that at the beginning if you give yourself more space to process and you're more accepting of grief as a part of your life, you're equipping yourself with the tools that you need to work through grief kind of as it flows rather than trying to tamp it down or shut it down, keep a lid on it, and then exerting all that energy to just keep it down, if that yeah. makes sense. So if you kind of open it up, then it's just open and it, it's going to free flow a little bit, but it won't be so effortful to grieve. Yeah. So basically you're saying you're going to have to exert that energy anyway, whether to learn how to deal with it or to try to bottle it down. So I might as well use it in a productive way. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> cool. Um, I want to ask you how you dealt with it on a personal level. Because like, again, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, it was such an extreme yeah. situation where we both lost two family members in such a close amount of time and both also how your brother, he took his life. Yeah. And I would love for you to share how you walked through your own process and what you learned yeah. there and how it was for you. Yeah. I, I think that my experience of grief, you know, I grieved these two losses differently. Um, the two kinds of death sort of brought about different processes for me. In the case of my dad, I think in a way it was this sense of like 
sad, sadness and vulnerability. You know, I really felt a little bit orphaned, right? Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a daughter without a dad and walking around in the world without my dad just felt very strange. I felt very young, if that makes sense. Mm, And, um, yeah, I, I was grateful that at least in that case, I did know that he was going to die. That's not always helpful for people, but for me it was. Um, so I had some time to be with him. I was able to physically be present with him when he died, which mattered a great deal to me in terms of being able to really sort of walk him up to the gate, so to speak, and wave him, you know, like wave goodbye and and felt like I could be tenderly present with him. That made the grief a little bit softer. Uh, The loss of my brother was definitely more shocking, more traumatic. His death was violent. And that kind of death means there's some other sort of steps to take. You know, I think many, many people who lose someone by suicide do a lot of the like, how could I have prevented this? What did I not see? Um, What should I have done differently? There's a lot of kind of like cognitive working out of blame and shame and guilt and responsibility. Um, So I had to do some of that. I didn't get stuck there for long, thankfully. Um, But I think it does require that you were able to not get stuck there because it's it's a very serious thing. And a lot of people fall into that guilt, shame and so on. What do you think enabled you to not get stuck there? Um, I do think that my training as a psychologist was helpful, to be honest. Um, because I have seen a lot of people get stuck and I really didn't want to get stuck, if that makes sense. So I sort of sensed when I was going down some trails that I thought were going to be really dangerous for me. And I kind of knew to like reverse out. I also, you know... I think I got a really special gift in that the last thing that I ever said to my brother while he was alive, the last phone conversation we ever had. So the last words I ever said were, I love you. And it's a small thing, but it mattered very much to me because it, it really solidified how I did feel about him, that I really loved him very deeply. And I did a lot to try to support and help him. And at the end of the day, I feel really, I don't feel like I held anything back. And so my own appraisal of how I showed up for him, um, I, I feel good about that. And that that's important to me. Thank you for sharing. And it must be tough also going on all these podcasts and going through the story again. It's appreciated. In a way, it keeps them alive. A little bit, you know, like, yeah. I like that I get to tell stories about them. That yeah. matter. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So from what I understood, from my perspective, you said the two main things that allowed you not get, sorry, stuck in the grief and really be able to move forward were one, that you sensed that you said what you wanted to say to him and it was left on a good note. And two, you said you didn't go down certain paths. When you recognize you're going down a gloomy path, you were able to reverse out of it. And I'm assuming, going back to what we started to talk about, that that was through some kind of physical practice. Would that be accurate, that that was a big lever there? 
Yeah, I think the physical practice kept me grounded in my life, if that makes sense. So the Can some of the like, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the paths that I had to go through thinking about what maybe I could have done differently, like that sort of lived in my head. And, you know, I had to sort of circumnavigate those thoughts. But when it comes to physical practices, so for me, I am an aerialist, I'm a circus artist, which is I sort of got into because of all of this grief. And um, it helps me to feel really anchored in my own aliveness. Because one mm. of the things that's really tricky about grief and especially grief by suicide is this sense of like survival guilt or people who've um, yep. maybe had experience with the military will be familiar with this concept is that it feels like oh, it should have been me. I should have done more. I, like I wish I could trade places with him. And being really grounded in my own body and in my own physical practice helped me to just feel very alive. Like all of the cells in my body were like, we we're here. We are still here. We get to be alive yeah. and we can, I can be present to grief. I can think about it, feel it, write about it, be present to it. But also I want to be really dialed in to the aliveness that I hold in my own self. It's interesting because I would have expected you to say something that it gave me an opportunity to be focused on something else, to not have that consume me. And you're saying something entirely different, which is interesting. <laughs> I think they're both true, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Why do you think that was a value to do something that was a distraction almost? It's just kind of not a distraction. It's called like a more honest, just a, a refuge for a couple yeah. hours of the day or the week or whatever it may be. I think especially having two compounding griefs close to each other, it can feel relentless. Like my mm. whole life is about like being sad and people dying. Like it can feel like there aren't a lot of other storylines to pay attention to. And so when I'm doing aerial, I'm, you know, 25 feet in the ground, I'm hanging from one hand, like I have to really focus. It's impressive. It's very impressive. On what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, right? You got yeah. But you your brain is all in and your body yeah. is all in. And so you get sort of absorbed in the practice and it lets you have a break from all the other stuff, from the reality of death and grief. And because that part of my life was on pause, I could really feel that aliveness, a little bit of lightness. Yeah. Do you think so you the distraction drawn... makes possible the lightness. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, do you think with lightness, so you're using that term, is that why you chose Ariel as well to pursue as a hobby? That it was something a bit, not just going to the gym for a run, but A, that you had to be mentally like focused during that time. And B, there was some levity there, like physically, literally levity. I think so. I mean, I didn't sort of do it on purpose. During these this period, I was also training in the gym, like more traditionally doing HIT training. And I would go in and, and and use the battle ropes, you know, the big heavy ropes that are in the gym and just slam them with every like ounce of strength in my body. And that felt really good. It felt sort of like aggressive, <laughs> like let me get this shit away. Like I just want to yeah. whip it out. Um, but I think Ariel, because it is – we talk about aerialists as artist athletes because obviously it's a ton of strength. It's very, very physical, but it's also pretty emotionally expressive. It is a little bit like dancing. And so the pairing of 
emotional expression, be it levity, be it playful, be it light, or even even things that are sad or creepy or weird, you know, any of that can be depicted through an aerial practice, which is pretty fun. Do you think that's a big, would that be a recommendation that you give to people that are going, even let's say not on a macro level, like grief and emotions of that magnitude, but just stressors to take up some sort of physical practice that also requires them to be mentally engaged at the same time, not just running on the beach where you can go with your thoughts and all that, but something where you have to actually be zoned into that. Is that something that 100%. you would prescribe? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, neurologically speaking, it's it's neurological diversification. So you're using different circuitry when you're doing that kind of a physical practice compared to like what I do all day, which is sitting in front of a computer and talking to people. So when you are using a totally different part of your brain, obviously it's really good for robust brain health anyway, but I think it is really, really important under times of stress to give that sort of default circuitry a break and lean into these other parts of your brain. And when we talk about something that's absorbing Another maybe concept that's similar, maybe not exactly the same, but a cousin concept is the state of, is, is a concept of flow state, where you're so in something you lose track of time or you lose track of your place. You know, you're outside of like your cognitive awareness and completely in an activity. So surfing is often like that, kite surfing. Um, yeah. I don't particularly like swimming, but I think. Some people experience that with swimming. So this space where you're sort of zoned out, but you're actually zoned in to something different than your daily thoughts. Yeah. For me, it's personally Brazilian jiu-jitsu and swimming. It's like when Mm -hmm. I'm either in the water or when I'm training that intensity with somebody that's complex, it does that. And I wanted to talk to you about this because it's interesting you said give yourself a break. What do you think about using it as a preemptive tool? You say, okay, I know I'm about to be in a very intense place, again, either because some macro thing that happened in my life or just the chronic stress of it, but really using it as a preemptive tool. What is your opinion on that? Excellent. I mean, I I think anything that we can do to play prevention is great. And I was lucky that Ariel was in my life before these losses happened. So I had a foundation I could drop into. But when you don't have a foundation and you're starting something from scratch, so let's say you have a a catastrophe happen in your life and you're like, oh, I heard this podcast and I need to like get a hobby. (laughs) That's a, that's a difficult time to start something new because it's frustrating and it's irritating to be totally new at something. So having some kind of physical practice that really gets you in your body is part of overall mental health, I would argue. Um, and it does help pr- protect you when you experience these seasons of increased stress. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to kind of talk about, I've been alluding to it a bit throughout the podcast. It's really interesting to me, your perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people give themselves permission to address their mental health, grief, and so on and so on. When events of a high magnitude happen, like macro events, like a, a death mm-hmm. in the family, something really extreme, but when it's something a bit more micro that happens to them, they don't give themselves that permission. But like you said, it's still there and still boils up. And I'd love to hear your opinion of how would you recommend people understand that this micro is also something you should give yourself permission to to work through because it does have a residue that it leaves. 
Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite mental health practices is, is just recording the highs and lows of every day. Hmm. And it's not very, uh, profound, I guess, but it is actually pretty profound because every day for the last probably almost 12 years, I've recorded one sentence, the high point of my day and the low point of my day. And what it does when I write down the low point, for example, it gives, it gives some attention. It gives an acknowledgement to that moment sucked. That was hard. That was painful. I didn't like that moment. And so I have this little bit of like an emotional acknowledgement of the low point. And over time, when you see those low points to mass, they're actually really interesting data. Sometimes people make great life decisions based on seeing these trends in their low points over time. So to get to your question, this sense of micro griefs, I mean, we're grieving all the time, especially if you're a business owner, like you're grieving, you know, launches yeah. <laughs> that didn't go as you expected. You're grieving employees that leave. You're grieving a global recession that's messing with your plans. You're, you know, there are many, many griefs. And I think the the framework of grief is to simply experience the emotions associated with an event that involves loss. Yeah. And sometimes that's, most times, that's just acknowledging I had this and I lost it. I hoped for this and I lost it. And I've got feelings associated with that. What do you say to someone who's afraid that that means they're falling into victimhood? They're having some victimhood creep by doing that. And that's their concern and why they're not willing to lead into it. Victimhood is where you build an identity around those losses, right? Because I've lost things, therefore I am entitled to certain behavior, or I'm entitled to treat people a certain way, or I'm entitled to certain, uh, I don't know, privileges. So the entitlement is the issue with victimhood, not the emotional expression. The emotional expression of, I had this wonderful plan and it fell apart, and that's a bummer. And I feel it, and I'm going to acknowledge it, and then I'm going to move on. I think is actually the opposite of victimhood, because you're you're just letting it sit there and then moving on. You're not like, holding it into your chest to save for forever. Yeah, and I think it's also you're saying this happened, but I'm strong enough to not let it define me, like how you're saying about the identity. I think it's yeah. a great way you said it. Um, okay, so the last question I really want to ask is, what would you say to someone who's struggling to give themselves permission to grieve or to deal with their mental health? And when would be the right time for them to actually address this? Well, the answer is now. <laughs> I I really feel like the conversation around mental health is not so much around crisis intervention as much as it's about mental health maintenance all the time, right? You brush your teeth every day, at least I hope, maybe twice a day. It's just maintenance that you do to protect your body and your health. And maybe you stretch every day, maybe you meditate, but mental health is part of your daily practice. And that could mean working with a therapist once a week or once a month. It could mean just really attending to your exercise. It could mean journaling. It could mean the high-low practice that I mentioned. But it's the attention toward this part of you that is important and significant and does need to be tended like every part of you, like we tend our relationships and our bodies. Yeah. 
So I kind of uh, give a summary of what my main takeaways were from. I'd be interested to hear if you feel like you're, I'm on the right spot or if I missed something. <laughs> okay. So first off, the biggest thing for people to recognize is that going through grief doesn't mean you're going to be depressed. It is not an automatic thing that if you do this, this will happen. And also what we said towards the end that also if you grief, you're not going to become a victim. If you acknowledge certain things that are painful, it does not mean you will fall into victimhood. And you can give yourself that permission without being afraid that you'll come across as weak or be weak. That's number one. That'd be accurate? Absolutely. Right. And when you're going through something that's a bit more on the on the more the higher level of magnitude side as far as grief, is to one, like especially you said about the the loss of your brother. Do it, hopefully you can. Say what you need to say. And don't hold anything back that you might regret later. And two, if you can be aware of not going down into the deep ends that you don't want to go and having some kind of physical practice that's also that's really you're really involved in. That it's not just something that you can run on the beach and have your thoughts, but something that you really have to engulf yourself in. It could be an amazing both tool to help you um, recover from things and also as a preventative tool. How you called it maintenance. I agree. And finally, that you're saying the time is now. The way I look at it, from what you said, the time is now because these things happen anyway. Like you're going to spend energy either trying to hold these things down as they bubble up, or you can spend energy more intelligently learning how to process these things. So you have a kind of cleaner yeah. slate to work with. You have less baggage to carry up that hill that you're trying to climb. Would that be accurate? Is yeah. it kind of what would be the three main takeaways from this one? Excellent. I feel like you listened really well. <laughs> I tried. So Sherry, I want to say a big thank you for coming on. Guys, she's out with her new book, Touching Two Worlds. It talks all about this and much more in depth. It's highly recommended. Also, a lot of my previous clients um, know of Sherry and have read her books and have spoke very highly of her. So I recommend it very much as well. And Sherry, thank you again for being on. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Any parting words? It is. It's just really delightful to have the conversation with you. Thanks for having me on. And I really appreciate your openness to thinking about mental optimization and, and just like performance by going in through the hard things and out the yeah. other side. That's, yeah. that's a beautiful framework. Cool. Appreciate you. All right. Appreciate you likewise. All right. Thank you very much, Sherry. Till next time. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Emotional Fortitude Podcast. Please tell a friend if you enjoyed it and found value in it. Three last things before you go, though. If you feel like someone else with your exact skill set and abilities could be accomplishing more than you currently are, that's a mindset and emotional access issue. And here are three ways I'd love to help you conquer any internal limitations, go big, and win. One, three quick ideas Tuesday newsletter. It's a weekly email with three quick ideas around one aspect of elite performance and how to approach it differently to get better and faster results. People say it's the most thought-provoking and impactful two minutes they spend in their inbox each week. It's easy to sign up to and easy to cancel, and you can sign up at edamumryan.com slash three ideas. Two is the Emotional Fortitude Micro Course. It will help you build the emotional fortitude and confidently tackle any goal. It's the complete, nothing-held-back emotional fortitude system in five simple parts. It's all under five minutes each module. See it, use it, and win. And it's completely free at edamumryan.com slash course. And number three, lastly, if you want to dive in and aggressively level up, the Arena Mindset Accelerator might be for you. It's a six-week intense sprint for entrepreneurs who are up for a dramatic transformation. It's an interactive live program where you'll be working with me in a very hands-on way to get clarity on what you want, 
build an effective mindset to optimize for your goals and establish elite emotional fortitude that would allow you to overcome any fear or doubt that could get in your way. You can learn more at itamarmorani.com slash accelerator. You can find all of these links in the show notes below or go to itamarmorani.com and have a look around. Until next time, who dares wins.